Hey, welcome to the C3 Church Victory Podcast. We pray this message will inspire you and activate your faith. Thanks for joining us. Awesome. We're in a great series at the moment, and uh, we're going to continue. Uh, we're going to look at Mark chapter 2. Pastor Jez did such a great job. Sorry, Pastor Geraldine did such a great job last week, kind of be, uh, giving us like an entry into this encounter uh, that, that Jesus and, and, and this man who is, who is paralyzed and his friends. Um, and, and if you haven't listened to that or you weren't able to be here, make sure that you go back, watch YouTube. Uh, all of our messages are on YouTube, so you do not have to miss out. Uh, if you weren't able to be here for a week, you can, you can follow along. I want to welcome our online guys. I uh, hope you are ready. hope you're sitting on the edge of your couch or wherever you're watching uh, and engaging in church this morning. I uh, hope you are ready to receive from God's Word today. We're going to read Mark 2. Uh, 5 to 12. I'm going to paraphrase it if that's all right. I, I've got, I'm, I'm, I'm fully loaded this morning. Um, I am ready to go. And uh, we have a bake sale to get to, and, and people's stomachs are going to start to grumble if I don't get this out in time. And I've already only got 23 minutes on the clock. So uh, I hope you are ready to write quickly this morning. I hope that you are on the edge of your seat. Uh, worship team has done a great job setting a platform. But this story in Scripture that we come to today is a, is a recount, uh, really Peter's recount through Mark, remember that as we go through, about an incredible encounter uh, that Jesus has with a, with a paralyzed man. Um, to, to paraphrase our story, to get to really where I'm kicking off this morning, uh, Jesus is in a house, scholars say it could actually be his house, which is interesting, and this incredible crowd come to his house. That'd be a great day, wouldn't it? An incredible crowd come to his house. But so much so, the paralyzed man couldn't get in. And his friends are like, nah, we're not, we're not going to really let that stop us from getting this guy to Jesus. Uh, and so they, they lift off some tiles, uh, and they lower him down. And Jesus says to this man, hey, uh, your, sons are forgiven. Yeah, your sons are forgiven. Your sons are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. Picking up now uh, in verse 6, if we can do that. It says, now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. This is a scary passage of scripture. This this, this is confronting, right? Like Jesus knew what they were thinking in their hearts. This is different to what they said out loud. Why are you thinking these things, he said to them? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat and walk. But I want you to know, oh, this is, these are fighting words, I love this, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on, on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, it's funny, he says one thing to them, one thing to the man. So he says to the man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat and go home. He got up, took up his mat, walked out in full view, in full view of them. <laughs> oh, I love it, love it. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Can we pray? Father, love your word. I love that it adjusts us. It encourages us. And Lord, it it brings us into a relationship with Jesus. So Lord, this morning, would you speak to us? Would you adjust us, and would you bring us deeper into a relationship with your son? In Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. 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 I don't know about you, but... um, I've been to a number of conferences now in my time as a believer, and I love a good conference. 
Like if you, if you need an op, like something just to give you a little, little nudge in your walk with God, go to a conference. Put yourself in an environment where someone else has crafted and curated an encounter with Jesus. Just, just uh, like the cost shouldn't, like it, we invest in a lot of things, right? I invest in a lot of caffeine. I invest in a lot of clothing. But there is a very little that is better than an investment in your walk with God. All right, I'm just going to say that. But um, not only have I been to a lot of conferences, I've helped to put on conferences. Uh, who remembers Unleashed? Yeah. Fantastic. Who thinks there's a time coming where Unleashed needs to mature into an adult conference for our city? Yeah. I do. I do. I really believe that. But there was a particular Unleashed um, that, that we were putting on, and, and, and me and, and my youth pastor at the time, we were responsible for the pre-vibe right? Because pre-vibe is a big deal, right? Pre-vibe helps people get into a frame of mind and a frame of heart where they can actually engage, you know? Like, it's why we put music on by the coffee carts, why we ply you up with caffeine, so that, so that we can use some elements to get you in a position where you are actually in, in, in a happy state of mind when you walk into church, right? Because some of you, some of you struggle to do that. You come in, it's been a tough week. Um, I know, I know, Rachel and I, this week has not been one of those weeks where you naturally come into the house of God full of joy. But praise God for people and, 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 and things like caffeine that just help shift you a little bit. Can I say that? I'm going to press some buttons this morning. I'm warning you. I mean, I'm wearing a John Mayer t-shirt to preach the word of God. Some of you aren't handling that. That's okay. But this particular youth conference, we're in charge of like setting the vibe. And so, you know what we did? We didn't just, we didn't just do a little thing. We, 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 we crawled around in roof cavities and under the building, um, installing a satellite dish so that we could pick up certain channels. I can't go into too much detail because I think what we did was slightly illegal. But, but we made sure that the young people came into this, this pre-auditorium space with, with fuel TV pumping on this projector and, and, and setting the vibe. And, and the thing was that we had, this, we had this attitude. I don't know if Emil McCabe's here this morning, but he was a part of, we had this crew and we called ourselves the black sheep. Right? We called ourselves the black sheep because you could ask us to get something done and we would get it done, just don't ask us how we did it. All right, it was the same youth conference. I think we managed to pack over 13 double bed mattresses on a single ute. Don't ask us how we did it. Just celebrate the fact that we had an epic pregame. All right? Nothing to see here. In the years of youth ministry before risk assessments were required. Amen? But, but, but this black sheep attitude was that we would, we would do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to set an environment of excellence, whatever it takes to set an environment where, where people had the best chance to encounter Jesus, right? You wonder why we talk about aiming for excellence in this church. It's so that we can, at every step of the way, eliminate any potential thing that might get in the way of somebody encountering Jesus, we want the experience that someone has their first time they walk into the house of God to be something that is amazing because God's house is amazing. And in our story today, we see, we see five categories of people. Okay, we see, we see the crowd, right? And I'll just to quickly reference the crowd, the crowd is the group of people that are wowed by the miracles and the teaching. They chase the next biggest wow, but they have no, no actual investment into the person that, that is there in front of them. Don't be a part of the crowd. Mark makes a big distinction right throughout his gospel with the difference between the crowd and the disciples. 
Okay? The crowd and the disciples. Then we have Jesus. Jesus is a category of people in the story, person, really. But he's self-explanatory, right? Okay, we know who he is, hopefully, um, at this point. Uh, we don't need to go into that. Then we have the paralyzed man, we have the Pharisees, and we have the, the paralyzed man's friends. And I like the friends. I really like the friends. Because, because I can relate to the friends. I relate to their attitude. I relate to that black sheep mentality where it's like, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, we are going to do what we can to, to make sure that we are able to get to Jesus, right? Because, because they weren't satisfied with being blocked out by the crowd, but not just that they could get to Jesus, because they knew that if they could get their friend to Jesus, they were going to be partnered in the encounter that he was going to have with Jesus. Some of us think that going to church is just about us. It's not just about us because church is not an individualistic uh, experience. Church is a collective. And so coming to church is about everyone else that comes to church too. And sometimes I think that when we, when we have a mindset that is, well, church is just about me, it becomes very easy to miss church. It becomes very easy to, to not log on. Whatever it takes, right? Like, like, how much weather does it take or what temperature is the point at which you stop turning up? Oh, that went very quiet. I, I warned you I was going to push some buttons this morning. All right? So you should have, you should have pre-prepared. Okay? I have on my, my notes many, many times in my pages here, smile. This is actually written there. Smile. I just saw it. It reminded me. But like, what, what does it take? What does it take for you to, to step back? What does it take? Is it, oh, was it, like, is the volume a bit loud? Like, I know it's not everyone's personal preference, but if, that's what it sto- if that stops you from, from not just you encountering Jesus, but, 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 but what you contribute to someone else's encounter with Jesus. Like, like these friends, they're pulling off roof tiles. They are determined to get to Jesus but more than that, they are determined to get their friends to Jesus. I mean, I know we have some struggles with our, with our online stream, guys, but like at some point, I want to encourage you, like push through. Don't log off at the first sign of, of the stream coming down. Like we got two places that you can engage in our online service. Like sometimes I think our determination is so individualized that if it doesn't work for me, then it's, then, it, then it's just easy for me not to. And we forget, we forget that this collective is not just about me. It's what I get to contribute to someone else's walk with Jesus at the same time. Right? Like, like, like when you walk into this building, we have to realize that we have an influence on someone else's breakthrough. So show up. Engage. Realize that your approach might be helping to carry someone else. We've all had Sundays when we walk into the house of God and we don't know if we have the strength, we don't know if we have the emotional capacity, we don't know if we've got the faith to lift our hands. Never underestimate the power of the person next to you. Lifting their hands, 
getting on the front foot, declaring in a way that you can hear that Jesus is good, that he is faithful, that he's working all things together for the good of those who love him. Never, never underestimate the value that you bring into this house on someone else's encounter with Jesus. Be determined to walk, to carry, to bring someone into the house of God. You see, you see this... This attitude that the friends have, we've we've got to to cultivate this because it's influential in two places. It's influential on those who are already a part of the house of God. They come in here and they need what you bring. They need what you bring into this place to help them on their walk with God. But the second side of the coin is it's those that aren't in the house of God yet. They need you to be determined to bring someone to Jesus. And that was very deliberate. I did not say bring someone to church. Bring someone to the feet of Jesus. We've got to get a determination in us because the culture and the world that we live in right now is different to what it was 15, 20 years ago. We've got to have a determination that we are going to do the journey. However long it takes for us to walk with someone, whatever it looks like for us to remain in relationship with that person so we can walk with them, so that we can see the journey through and get them to the feet of Jesus. Whether it's a family member or a neighbor or a colleague, I believe we should all have someone that we are determined we are going to see at the feet of Jesus. So I relate to the friends. I also relate to the Pharisees. I also relate to the Pharisees, which is a little bit of a strange thing to say, but maybe it's a little bit of an acknowledgement that maybe we all need to make this morning, right? Because let's be honest, the Pharisees get a bad rap, like they do. We, we, we throw shade on the Pharisees all the time. But if you understand the context of the Pharisees, right, where they, they, their, their whole context for spirituality was the law, right? The law was good. The law was given to them by God. It was supposed to be beneficial. It was one of the ways that they, they, they fully believed they were going to see breakthrough for the nation of Israel was in keeping the law. Can you really blame them for being a little bit concerned about someone who is saying something completely opposite to the thing they fully believed was going to bring breakthrough for their nation? I mean, they get a bad rap, but we do it all the time. I mean, this was their identity. This is what defined them as the people of God. And God told them to keep it. The issue was that that, that their relationship was with the law. They never had relationship with God directly. If you go back through the history of the Israelite nation, what they had was a mediator. You know, it was, it was Moses, or it was Joshua. There was always a mediator. There was always a, a degree of separation between the people and, and God. And so, and so in some ways, I, I don't blame them because they didn't really know anything different. And you know, for some of you, your whole lives, you've grown up in, in, under a certain set of expectations and a certain set of rules and a, a certain set of uh, ways of doing things and the way things have to be done and should be done and, and you don't know any different. And so, and so the fact that you, you have a mindset that, that articulates that this is the way it has to be done and anything that kind of rocks that boat really rattles you, we've got to be okay with that's a reality. But then when Jesus is offering something different, we have to decide which one we're going to hold on to. 
You see, because of their relationship with the law rather than Jesus, they fall into really the definition of religiosity. Religiosity, by definition, it's my definition, is where, we va- the, is where we place the value of the rule or process over the one who gave it. You see, the danger for us is that we do the same. Like we value the rule or the process over the person who gave it. Like, like I said earlier, I mean, I, I deliberately wore this. I was going to wear ripped jeans and a hat too, but they're, they're packed because, you know, we're in that process with the house. But just, just to see if I could just slightly press on some buttons. Just press on people's should. Just press on. Well, it, it, like, like I wasn't around when the organ left and the electric guitar came in. But religiosity... Loves protocol. And, and, and the issue is that, that the more religious we get, the more rigid we get. And the more rigid we get, it's like we actually, we actually like, I, I, this will freak out when I use this word, but we, we get bound up. We actually get bound up in the rigidity, you see, because to be full of life is free. There's a, there's, a, there's a flowing nature to the Holy Spirit, the river of God. There's, there's freedom and there's flow and there's life. And when we get bound up in religious protocol and rules and regulations and how things should be done and have to be done, we, we, what happens actually life starts to get constricted out of us. And what we end up doing is we end up judging the people who act different but have a freedom. We get intolerant. We, get, we, we, we lose our grace for people. Oh, they shouldn't do that. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about sin necessarily here, okay? I'm talking, about, I'm talking about the way in which people outwork their relationship with God. The way in which we do church. The way in which we gather as a community. Oh, we, it has to be like this. If that was the case, we'd still be singing all sorts of hymns. You see, the issue is that when maintaining tradition becomes more important than maintaining relationship. What starts with life, and this this is the difficult thing, right? The law had life in it. Like it was what God gave them. And, And so often many of the things that we do have life in them. They begin with life. It's like God is doing a new thing and we grab a hold of it and we're all about the electric guitars. But then if, if, if one day we come along and we want to do like, like electric dance music is the new thing God's putting his hand on and you're all like get bound up and like, whoa, we can't do that in church. It's got to be an electric guitar. It's exactly the same. And what happens is what begins with life ends up as a lock. And we forget that it, wasn't, it isn't the source, right? We, we, we value the known process, the clean, clear process instead of the messy uncertainty of relationship. We lean on rigid application. Oh, this, is, this is a classic example. And we read Paul's letters 
And, 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 and the first half of them are all theology. He's explaining his theology most of the time, right? And we read that and we don't really get it. And so we skip over it and, 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 and we land on how Paul applies it. And we take that application and we apply it with a sense of rigidity as in that's how it has to be done. People can do this and they can't do that. And we forget that Paul had a relationship with Jesus and he is he's explaining how to outwork that relationship with Jesus in its boundaries and its confines into a very specific set of events at a very specific time in history. And what we want is rigid reapplication rather than relationship with the Holy Spirit who might tell us to have mercy over judgment or love over truth or grace in this certain circumstance. And instead of listening to him, we take a rigid application of, of what Paul has written and we go, well, you can't do that. And we judge people. And we have rigid lines in the sand. Now, I firmly believe that in God's kingdom, there are boundaries and there are things that we need to avoid and we have, there's behaviors and there's character traits, and absolutely. But our application and the, our discussion around those should come out of a relationship with the Holy Spirit and within a relationship with people. Religion builds a wall around our mind that disconnects actions from our heart. Because I can apply something and it be completely separate from my heart. The Holy Spirit can be trying to do something here and soften this. But all I'm doing is giving this. And this is hard and abrasive and judgmental and critical. I had a picture while I was writing this message. It was of, it was of soil. You see, soil is this beautiful thing to a plant. It holds nutrients and it holds water. The roots go into the soil and that the roots in, in, in their interaction with the soil get food and water and really it's a source of life. But over time, what happens with soil is it gets a hard crust. And what actually used to bring life gets so hard and crusty that it actually begins to repel the water. And so it actually begins to work opposite to its purpose. Not only is it slightly dysfunctional, it's now working opposite. It's not even absorbing the water and just putting it somewhere else. It's repelling the very thing that is supposed to be absorbing to be able to give life. And I wonder how many religious traditions and right thinking like it's got to be right and it's got to be should and it's got to do this and it's got to do that and there's no way I'm going to finish this message this week, which is really unfortunate. But how many of these things have become a crust to the point where we're actually repelling the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives because, oh, well, it can't look like that. It can't be like that. I wonder what is God challenging you to dig up and turn over in your life today? What is so rigid that it's actually restricting you from love and life? Smile. Church, are you going to be all right if I just go for a little bit, tiny little bit longer? Is that going to be okay this morning? All right. Come on. I promise you, you can gorge on sugar after this. They thought to themselves, they thought to themselves, religiosity always begins in our mind. It always begins in our mind. It begins with a question. It begins when we, we begin to question, not in a good way, but we question in a critical and judgmental way so that we come to a judgmental conclusion about what is occurring. Right? I, I've written down here some previous traditions just in case we didn't like 
impress on enough things in here, but you know, like, like churches used to have to look like cathedrals. They couldn't look like conference centers. They had to have organs, not electric guitars. What about praying in tongues? So funny, so funny. I hope I, hope I can share this. this is going to be all right. Pete, can I share the funny, the funny thing? Okay, so we're looking back through um, some old minutes. I'm talking old, old minutes, like Victory Baptist minutes, right? Charlestown Baptist minutes from deacons meetings, right? And there's this, there's this thing that has been written down where, where someone has recorded in the minutes of this meeting that they need to address the insidious teaching of the Pentecostal pastor that came up from Campbelltown to teach at a youth conference. Oh, if they could see our church now. If they could see our church now, the insidious teaching of the Pentecostal pastor. Hallelujah. Some of you aren't sure how to handle that. Certain clothing, certain hairstyles. I want to ask you a little question. What is in your heart when something new happens? Do you have questions like, right or it should it should look like this well this is the right way this is the way it should be done be careful even 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 the world psychology will tell you they're really toxic thinking patterns they're really toxic and you want to know where they begin they begin with what corinthians calls human reasoning and it's interesting right because because paul writes that that our weapons of warfare are strong. What are they strong against? They're strong against pulling down strongholds built by what? Human reasoning. Human reasoning and logic. Can I tell you, the enemy is far less involved in building strongholds in your mind than you are in building your own ones. He just gives you a little nudge. He just gives you a little nudge. Proverbs tells us to guard our heart for out of it flows all of life. Heart and mind, they're very interrelated in Scripture. And if you allow your mind to go to a place where in your human reasoning, you begin to question and judge and start to think, well, they can't do that. They shouldn't do that. That's not right. You got to be careful, church. That's the sort of questioning that if we continue to ruminate on that and go around on that, every time we go around it, every time we ask it, it's like handing the enemy another brick to build a stronghold in your mind that ultimately wraps you up and binds you in such a religious spirit that you have no freedom left in that space. Worship needs to look like this. It's got to sound like that. And suddenly worship is so restrictive that you have no life and freedom. Jesus knows their thinking. And for the first time, for the first time in the book of Mark, Jesus intentionally picks a fight. Oh, I love it. Savage Jesus. You will find that Jesus is no more savage than when he addresses religiosity. It is is his bugbear. He will be full of compassion. For anyone who falls on their knees knowing they fall short, knowing they need Him here. Oh my goodness, the love of God is unbelievable. It's so much, so high and wide and deep that we will never fully comprehend it. Oh, but you bring a religious spirit into a place that restricts people from encountering Him, savage Jesus. And He picks a fight. He starts stirring some stuff up. 
He's setting a battle line in the sand. It's clear as day. We don't get it so much when we read Scripture. We don't understand how distinctly, how plainly he was confronting the Pharisees. How like, like you think I'm pushing some buttons this morning. Man, this was like, this was like a Mike Tyson punch to the face. Like the Pharisees could not miss the fight he was starting. And from chapter 2 on, what we see throughout the book of Mark, and I I cannot wait to get into some of this. Oh, it's going to be so good. There is this ever-building tension. There is this ever-building fight that Jesus knew. He knew he was picking it. And he knew where it ended. It ended on the cross. It is the climactic conclusion of the confrontation that is beginning in this moment. The confrontation that Jesus is bringing to the religious spirits of the day who are restricting the people of God from being able to encounter Him. Your sins are forgiven sounds so beautiful, but make no mistake, they're fighting words. They are fighting words. He is unequivocally claiming to be God. Like you cannot miss this. The Pharisees could not miss this. There was no question left. There was no wondering left. Jesus is standing in front of them and he says to them, I know what you're thinking. I'm God. Hey, son, stand up. You're going to feel the tension in that room in that moment. I mean, he is staring them down. And here's the thing. He either was God or the Pharisees are right and he's blaspheming. There's no middle ground. There's no room for misinterpretation. This is about as black and white as it gets in Scripture. Nobody had the authority to forgive sin except God. You've got to look for the tension in Scripture. You've got to search for it. Where it seems like it's saying one thing and then another thing seems like it's contradicting it. It's not contradicting it. It's creating a tension for you to explore with the Holy Spirit. You're going to find some of the greatest revelations are in the midst of tension. And we arrive at this question, this question that Jesus says, which is easier? Which is easier to say? You're healed or you're forgiven? Actually, neither is easier. It's not about what's easier to say. It's about what's easier to receive. What's easier to accept? That Jesus is just a healer? That he might do a couple of miracles here and there that the crowd follow, or he is unmistakably, unequivocally God on earth. You see, if he was just a healer, the Pharisees have no issue. They've seen him before. Little charlatans out there doing some stuff. But if he's God, I want you to know this is this is Jesus. I want you to know clearly who I am claiming to be. I am far more than a healer. I am God. I am the Messiah. I am your Savior. And I think it's more than that. Because because yes, neither is easier. But the truth is that even to us today, one is often easier to hear. In fact, I would say that one is what we want to hear often more than the other. And I think if we were honest with ourselves, we would surprise ourselves as to which one it is we want to hear. Because so often we get a little mixed up. And I 
I will be the first one to say, I do this. I put what I really want over what I really need. So often in life, right, let's land this plane on the paralyzed man. Not literally, that would be a little awkward. But what so often paralyzes us, 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 us in life is not having what we so want. You see, we, what we believe for or what we believe we need to move forward in our life with. Oh, when I, when I get that, when I get that level of success, when I get that spouse, when I get that certain amount of finance, when I get that house, when I get that baby, when I get that healing, when I get that breakthrough in that area that I've been praying about, I want that. And I want that. And so often I want that more than I want Jesus. Oh, I got a smile. Sorry. Tim Keller says this. He says, many of us first start going to, going to church, going to God because we, because we have problems. And we're asking God to give us a little boost over the hump so that we can get back to saving ourselves, back to pursuing our deepest wishes. The problem is we are looking to something besides Jesus to be our Savior. That thing, that thing that we want more than anything else, is what we have positioned as saviour in our lives. That when I get that, everything will be good. I tell you something, everything won't be good. Everything won't be good because it cannot do what Jesus does. (laughs) It is on the surface. Jesus is about what's deeper. Because we think sometimes that it's not having those things that is restricting us in our life when really what is restricting us in our life is the reality of sin and the guilt and the shame and the condemnation and the fear that come right along behind the sin that all of us live in at times. Let's not pretend in this place that we are not sinners saved by grace that still struggle against the fleshly nature and what we really need is Jesus. Because I, I, if I get Jesus, I can, I'm, I'm going to be good really without the house because I've got Jesus. Let's be honest right now. Like if I get Jesus, if I really get Jesus, I know I'm accepted. I know I'm loved. I know I'm called and chosen. And maybe that thing is all about acceptance from other people. Or maybe that thing is about showing that I'm valuable to the world. Or maybe that thing is about showing that I am good enough or I can do it. Or whatever it is, all of those things are satisfied in an encounter with the one true God, Jesus Christ. I've learned something recently. And that is that healing is profitable, but it's not deep enough. You see, it's only a delay. Forgiveness fixes eternity. I've done a number of journeys now where we have prayed and believed for healing over people's lives and they've passed away but I know they've passed into eternity 
I will never stop believing Jesus heals. He's healed me. He's healed me of celiac disease. He's healed me of a broken wrist. He's healed me. But all of those things are only a delay. And if what I want more than Him is healing, then I've missed it. We need more than a genie God. We need someone who can go deeper, below the depth of the desires that we know we have to deal with the core of who we are that creates them in the first place. Thanks for making time to hear this message today. We encourage you to connect with us by heading to c3victory.org.au. 